Let's pray and finish strong. Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift uh, from the church and God uh, for uh, just the humor in everything, Lord. And, and and really, there is there's a, this is a humorous world if we if we seek to find it. And so, Lord, I pray as we finish uh, these words of yours to these churches in the Book of Revelation, I pray you'd open our hearts to hear what we have to hear. You know, we're, we're all individuals. Everyone's going to process this stuff differently. And God, I pray what needs to connect with us is what would come through. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever played the dinner companion game, right? You know, where you, you, you I had this at almost probably two or three interviews where the question is, if you could spend one evening with dinner with anybody, uh, who would you pick and why? That's a very good interview question. You know, it'll tell you a lot about a person, if they could pick anyone in history or current to have dinner with. Of course, I know who the answer for most of you would be. Uh, your answer would be, go ahead and say it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, some of you are whispering Jesus. No, 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 no. Why? <laughs> Me. You know, Jesus can go have dinner with his own church. So, oh, wait. Oh, oh this is his church. Sorry. <laughs> In the Guinness Book of World Records, the number one person mentioned that the world would like to have dinner with is Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's a good one, huh? Come on. That's, yeah. That's, <laughs> he's number one on the dinner list. And you know what the good news is? He'd like to have dinner with you too. And today we're going to talk about that. Uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14. And uh, my first point is that Jesus had the first word on everything and has the final word on everything. Uh, beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. It, that's odd. <laughs> Go away. Okay. Uh, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, Jesus writes, And to the angel in the church of Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What is the word that you say after you pray? You've prayed, and then you say what? Amen, amen right? Uh, anybody know what amen means? So be it. Uh, so say we all is another, is, is the Latin, more Latin way of thinking of it. So say we, you know. It, it, there, there, there's just a sense of a final stamp, you know. Let, let this be this, you know. And, uh, and there's a sense of finality and a sense of authority when you say amen, right? Well, Jesus is saying, I am the amen, I am the final word in your life. Not cancer, not a divorce, not depression, not low self-esteem, not self-hatred, not bankruptcy, not debt, not death, not hell. Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the last word in your life. So no matter what you're going through or what you're struggling with, know that as long as you're still struggling with and it ain't over, Jesus has the last word. And sometimes he'll string trials in, along and kind, of, and kind of lengthen them out because he's using them to grow us and to strengthen us, mature us, or teach us something. He also says he was the beginning or the ruler of God's creation. This phrase means that all of creation 
came from the hand of Jesus. He was there in the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He'll be there in the ending. He is sovereign over every bird that flies, over every fish that swims, over every flower that blooms, or every rabbit that hops. Jesus is its creator and sustainer. You breathe because Jesus gives you the power of life and breath. That's the point of that scripture. So my action point is, and I'd like everybody to stand up for this. This is going to be a little bit of a sit-stand. Anybody, anybody know a Lutheran church? They sit-stand the whole time. I love it. This is going to be a little sit-stand. Go ahead and put your hand over your heart and just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, help me to see you as you really are. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. What is Jesus saying? When he says, I am the amen, he's saying, you know what? The things that, that, that you've been praying about, but you've given up on, get, you know, pray about them again. Don't give up on them until it's over. Keep going. Keep, uh, keep praying. And remember, big God, small problems, small. I already cleared one out, you know. It's <laughs> small God, big problems. Point number two. Sometimes you're gonna you're gonna hate this one. I hate this one. Sometimes we need to be shocked out of our comfort zones. Okay, okay, we get it. Stop. Go away. They say that in, in World War II, General Omar Bradley was one of the generals, and he was interviewed after the war. And as he was recalling World War II, he said, you know, our troops fought for England, and they did great on D-Day. He said, I was very proud of the American soldier during those times. He said, but if you really, if you want to know what changed the war and what changed the fighting nature of the American soldier, it was when we rolled into our first concentration camp. Then all of a sudden, everything changed for everybody. We wanted to beat the enemy tomorrow. We didn't want people to live like this one day more. And his little words were, we were shocked into the horrors of war. Not through D-Day, not through France, not through Belgium. But when we stepped into a concentration camp, we were shocked out of our complacency. And they literally brought the war to a close within 90 days of the first discovery. Four years, 90 days, because the concentration camps so shocked them. Jesus says, beginning in Revelation 3.15, he says, I know your works. I know that you're neither hot nor cold, cold nor hot. Uh, Would you, I would rather that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this would have made a lot of sense to the Laodiceans. They had built a very, they had lived in a valley. They had built a very complicated, you can still see some of it, it's really cool, a very complicated aqueduct from the springs in the mountains. Then they would travel, I mean, a lot like what we've done here, right? They took the water from the mountains and brought it into a dry valley. There's only one problem. We have an advantage they didn't have. You know what it was? refrigerators, ice cubes, uh, you know, stoves, 
all those kinds of things. By the time the water got into Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And people always complained about the water. Well, you know, that's a reality. Lukewarm liquid is no good. If you were to go to Starbucks, you either want to get an iced coffee or a hot coffee. But sit that coffee there. And I did this the other day. I came in. I don't know what I was doing. I was doing something. And it just seemed it was like a day like this video. You know, person after person came in. That's why I don't have my office here anymore. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Person after person was coming in. And I had bought a coffee. And I set it down. And I went to go back into the interior of the building here. I grabbed it. I took a swig of it. And I almost all over the floor. It was just lukewarm coffee is nasty. I had to put it in the microwave to heat it up. And even then, the memory of its lukewarmness, I just instantly dumped it out. You know, I just have to go get another cup of coffee. I didn't need the coffee anyway, high blood pressure. So, you know, (laughs) hot tea, cold tea, good. Lukewarm, never good. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, what's another name for lukewarm water? Room temperature. Room temperature. What do you need to make water room temperature? Nothing right? Leave it alone and it will become room temperature. Suppose you want to make it hot. You have to do something to the water to make it hot. You have to put on a stove. You have to put in a microwave. You have to sit on it for a while. Who knows? You got to do, (laughs) sit on it. You have to do something to make it hot. Suppose you want to make it cold. You have to do something to make it cold. Put ice in it. Put it in a refrigerator. The water will not become cold simply on its own. It will not sit back and either get hot or cold. Lukewarmness has a lot to do with water simply doing nothing. And, and how do you become lukewarm? Well, Jesus is saying, you know, just do nothing in terms of your faith in Christ. And that's what you will become. A lukewarm Christian is really nothing more than a room temperature Christian who has become just like the environment around him. He does nothing to grow or nothing to testify to his or her faith. The lukewarm Christian often has a lukewarm Christ to go with it, always keeping Jesus at arm's length, lest this religion thing get out of hand, (laughs) rather than changing the world around him. Slowly but surely, the world is changing him. When I was in high school, one of my good friends became a Christian. I was not. Man, he was always talking about Jesus. Jesus was like his friend. And finally, I looked at him and I said, dude, you are taking this religion thing too far. You need to dial back a little bit. And he looked at me and he smiled with his geeky smile. He said, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad. That means that this faith is real, that that you can sense the passion in me. I'm like, yes, I can sense the passion. But now I know what he was talking about. He was saying, thank you for not calling me a room temperature Christian. So here's the indictment. The Laodiceans, they were not guilty of some intentional sin. They were not committing immorality. They were not sleeping around. They were not robbing their neighbor. The problem with the Laodiceans is they did nothing. They sat back in comfort and ease and counted the days until death. 
instead of making every day count for Christ. You may ask, well, why does Jesus hate this so much? Why is he so against it? I mean, come on, you know? Not everybody can be hot. Not everybody can be cool. What is the problem here? And Well, the fact of the matter is, is Jesus is so concerned about this because a person can be in this condition almost lifelong and never even know it. We can slip into in such a state of total indifference that we begin to even stop caring about our own spiritual condition. I mean, after all, room temperature is by definition comfortable. And Jesus says, such a man or such a woman is unreachable, even through the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes until you shock him out of his complacency, shock him out of the comfort zone, shock him out of the room temperature. Now, I, I don't need to interview many of you, but for many of you who are here, I bet you at some point in your life, there was something that happened that shocked you out of complacency, that shocked you out of just cruising in the, in the zone, right? The gravy zone, right? There's something that shocks us. And it occurred to me that this particular struggle is probably more likely among longtime churchgoers. You've been going to church for years and years and years and years. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know the ropes. You, you know the ropes to this thing. You know how the system works. You know the lingo. You know where to sit. I was talking to somebody this morning. They had said before they'd come to our church, they had visited another church. And uh, when they were walking in the parking lot, a person from that church came up and said, you see that spot over there? That's where I park. I'm not lying. Somebody, somebody said that to me just this morning. You see it? Now it wasn't our church. It was another church. See that spot over there? That's where I park. You know what happened? You get so used to the system. So used to that, that all of a sudden, that's my chair. That's my light. That's my drum set. That's my parking spot. That's my coffee mat. You know, we, we, we began to get, you know, we know how to get along in a church service. We know how the machinery of the church works. What once seemed new and exciting and emotional is now just old hat for you. In fact, for lukewarm Christians, Christianity is as comfortable as an old shoe and about as exciting the amazement is gone. Hunger for the supernatural is gone. We're just waiting out this life, trying to have as much enjoyment as possible, knowing that Jesus has got us covered after we die. That's lukewarm. That's room temperature. Jesus says, how I wish you were hot or cold. So why don't we stand up again? Remember, sit, stand, sit, stand. Go ahead and put your head over your heart. And repeat after me. Say, Jesus, Jesus please, please shock me out of my indifference. Amen. You may sit down. <laughs> you don't have to say amen. That's okay. And I, I'll be honest with you. I realize I am as prone to lukewarmness as anyone. If anyone has the church system down, it's going to be the pastor, right? If anyone's got the lingo down, it's going to be the pastor. That's part of the reason why I don't keep an office here. I drive all over the city. 
Sometimes I go sit down by the get bus downtown. Yeah, there's some, there's some gnarly people there. There are, you know, but it's amazing. You know, why are you here? Hey, man, I, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just hanging out. Oh, you hang out? Oh, I'm working on a sermon. Oh, you pastor? Yeah. Just open up a conversation about Jesus. Because I know if I don't, I know if I sit in my little office here in, what is this? Oildale? Rosedale? The border, you know, <laughs> you know, I know what will happen. I will get as comfortable as an old shoe. And everybody else will feel it. You'll feel it too. Yeah, my pastor, he's like a nice little cardigan sweater. I can go in his office and he tells me. Da, 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 da. I told my wife, shoot me if I ever become that. <laughs> Point number three. Sometimes we need to be shocked out of our pride. Verse 7, keeps knocking on the door. Okay, we hear you. Shoo. Uh, he says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. And, and Jesus says, I'm realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy gold for me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus says, you're poor. But they weren't. They weren't poor at all. They were a very, 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 very affluent city. They had running water in their homes. That's pretty good for 2,000 years ago. Wouldn't you say? What he's really saying is, your pockets are full, but your heart is empty. Jesus is not making a blanket statement against wealth. I know many, many, many wealthy, some extremely wealthy Christians. They are humble. They are generous. They are seeking God's will. Uh, they, they, they are everything you'd hope they would be. Uh, they have money, but they don't have the love of money. Money doesn't define them. It's a tool that they use to do God's will on the earth. I know many. So it's not a blanket statement against wealth. But what Jesus is saying is, your financial arrogance has blinded you to your true spiritual condition. And I'll be honest with you, money has a way of doing all that. If I were to go win the lottery, and I had two suitcases full of $100 bills, you all would be staring at it. Money is hypnotic. If I had it on a string and was dangling $10,000, after about five minutes, I could have all you guys cackling like chickens, you know? It is hypnotic. It is, we get, we, we, we get en 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 enchanted by it. Sometimes we can't take our eyes off it. Why? Well, let's face it. We love money because with money, we can buy whatever we want. It makes us, it often makes us think we're doing better than we really are. The most important thing is money can insulate us from the pain of this world. Money can insulate us from the spiritual war that's going on in this world. Money can, ins it can numb us to the real trials and challenges of living on earth pre-second coming. It can insulate us to the pain and what Jesus is saying is the very thing that had gave them prosperity 
had sent a wasting disease to their soul. Money had blinded them to their own inner decay. He's not saying money is evil. He's saying it can become it can become a hindrance if it blinds us to our own spiritual condition. Next thing he says is you're naked. Well, this area was known for fine textiles, particularly black wool, which was very expensive, like a black suit. It was very expensive in that day. And uh, Jesus is saying, you're clothed with great clothes, but you're not clothed with me. Jesus says, you're blind. Laodicea was known for exporting an eye salve that helped to cure or alleviate blindness or glaucoma. And Jesus is saying, you've closed your eyes to the things of God. If we're always right, if we're always defending ourselves, if we're always blaming others, if we're always excusing ourselves, if it's always somebody else's fault, somebody else's folly, somebody else's failure, and we see all that about everybody else, but begin to fail to see our own need and our own brokenness. What Jesus says is, you may see, but you're blind. And so he says, repent, repent of being a fault finder and always looking to what others are doing and start here, right here at home. Now, this may seem harsh what Jesus is saying, but he's actually being very loving. I mean, like a good parent, he hates the things that is destroying them and he loves them. Uh, one time, well, my son was like, Dad, you know, I just figured it out. You know, you've been playing soccer with it. You've been doing all this stuff, and then we have to go to bed, and I haven't been getting all the video game time I used to get. And I said, absolutely, that was my plan. He looked at me and said, Dad, you're mean. You're mean. You're just trying to keep me. I said, you know, I am kind of. I don't think, I think it's healthy to go outside, get dirty, bump around, play ball with your dad. Because I'm not into video games. I'm into one. But I'm not into many of them, you know. <laughs> it's a little Holy Spirit thing going, don't lie. <laughs> and so, so he's like, Dad, you're mean. I'm like, no, 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 no. It may seem mean when Jesus calls us out and says, don't be selfish. Repent. You know, it may seem mean, but it's very, very loving. So my third action point is, you don't have to stand for this one, but put something in your schedule right now that takes you out of you. And I'm going to tell you the number one way to do it. Come out here to church on Wednesday nights at 6.30. Come out here to church on Wednesday nights at 6.30. Uh, it is a great avenue to meet people in groups, to talk about faith, to encourage. There are some new people who have come to our church. They were here one or two, three months. It was very hard for them to meet somebody on Sunday. But because some of you came on Wednesday, not only have they met some people, but we found out they have no family here. One of them's pregnant. Well, we're, our church is going to throw them a baby shower. And their, their eyes are getting wide open like, wow, is this how the body of Christ works? Yes, it does. That's what I want to be a part of. Rather than sitting back, reading the Bible, having person after person come into my office in between bouts of passing gas. That's not what I had in mind. And so, you know, there's an there's a, there's a action point to what Jesus is calling us to. 
And so get involved in a small group. Get involved in a Wednesday night group. Get involved in... What? I'm doing something. Jesus, you picked the wrong time. I'm right in the middle of sermon here. I'm right in the middle of doing something. I mean, these, these people are checking their... I've seen them. They're, they want to get out of here. I got to finish... You can't interrupt like this. I mean, I have something to say to them. Though. No, 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 no. If I let you speak, you'll clear out the church. Let's just get you back in there right now, you know. We just, we just, yeah, yeah, just, I'll tell you what. You just keep knocking, all right? All right, we got that thing nice and locked. No matter how many times we lock him out, Jesus keeps faithfully knocking. He says in verse 20, and this is a verse to memorize, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and he will eat with me and I will eat with him. What is Jesus saying to this church? They had a door. And Jesus was knocking on the door. They weren't letting him in. They're saying, Jesus, we don't want your kind around here. We don't want someone who's going to tell us to repent. We're going to want someone, we don't want someone who's going to challenge our commitment. We don't want someone who's going to mess up our comfort zones or our comfort lives. We don't want someone to tell us we're being a little selfish. We don't want somebody to tell us we got some things in our hearts we need to change. So we're going to deadbolt the door, but we'll see you at confession because we sure do want the peace of forgiveness. The action point for point four is simply this. All of you, all of us, we eat dinner, most of us, once a day. Open the door and invite Jesus into dinner. A few well, a year or two ago, our family had gotten so busy, we weren't eating dinner together anymore. As a pastor, most of my life is working nights and weekends. I realized I wasn't eating with my sons or my wife. And on Sunday, I fall asleep because I get tired on Sunday afternoon after doing this all day. And as I read this scripture months ago as I was preparing for this, Jesus is kind of very, very deliberate, you know, to come in and eat. And for us, our big family meal together is dinner. So I told my family, I said, you know what, from now on, we will always have dinner for six. There's five in our family. We'll open up with prayer and just have a conversation. And it's just one question. What's one thing today that Jesus showed you about yourself or the world? I make all my kids do it. And sometimes it's like, oh, Jesus showed me that life is awesome. And sometimes they're getting really good at this and say, you know what? Jesus showed me that people can be cruel and evil. Uh, or Jesus showed me something about myself. You know, I talk about myself so much because nobody else talks about me. I'm like, wow, that's pretty deep for a nine-year-old, you know? Invite Jesus to dinner. Don't let him knock at the door of your supper table and not let him in. He's the most incredible 
man, person, force, and power this world or universe will ever see. Far worthy of conversation than our little minutia we got going on down here. Amen? And then last but not least, verse 21.5, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. If I was to preach the rest of the book of Revelation, the theme from here on out is the throne of Jesus. It will be mentioned 42 times from Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 22. Most people think that the dominant theme of the book of Revelation is the coming of the end of the world and the 666 mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff, and, and that's what we focus on. But the wrong, if you read it and look at it, it's the throne of Jesus is the main theme of the book of Revelation as you see it from the beginning of the world through the first coming of Jesus and through the second. It's the throne of Jesus. And Jesus mentions it again here to the Laodiceans. Why? Because for anybody in their world, the throne would have meant money, power, comfort, purpose, leisure, recreation. You may say, wait a minute, Jesus had just kind of condemned their desire for all these things. Now, what's he really saying? What he's saying is something very, very simple. And point five is, Jesus is promising us more than we currently enjoy. Jesus is promising them a more generous and lavish life than the one that they were enjoying in America, in Laodicea. Well, both work, don't they? He said, look, I know it seems great. TVs, cell phones, four-wheelers, boats, spaceships. Yes, it's great. But it's nothing compared to what I have in store for you. You will see those as kids' toys when you get up here. So keep your priorities straight, Laodiceans because I want others to enjoy what I have for you. But if you don't care enough to go reach them, then they won't be reached. A few years ago, well, many years ago, when I was in college, I had to take what are called a foundation class. It means nothing to what you're going to major in, but you got to take it. One of them I took was called art history. And one of the classes, we examined a painting by Holman Hunt, I was interested because it was a painting of Jesus. And it was Jesus knocking on the door of an English cottage. And the critics criticized that Holman Hunt left out a key piece of the painting. There was no doorknob on the outside of the door. And as we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it, the professor finally said it was intentional. Holman Hunt wanted to convey that the door could only be opened from the inside. In other words, Jesus will never bust down the doors of our lives. We must always open the door to him. And then he comes in. And so my word for you this morning is if we open the door to him now, we will be with him forever. If we welcome him now, we will reign with him forever. 
That's the promise. That's what it's all about. That's what this is all about. If you get nothing from church all your life, but get that one thing, to open the door for Jesus when he knocks on the door of your heart. Let him in and believe he was the creator from the very beginning. He's the sustainer. You breathe because he's giving you the power to. He's the cleanser. All your sins, all that stuff about you that you're embarrassed, gone on the cross. And then he's the eternal reigner. Not only we get to be with him forever, it will be infinitely better than anything you got here right now. Bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. This morning, I just want to close the series with a very, very simple invitation. I think Jesus has been knocking all morning on some hearts. Maybe it's to repent of being a Laodicean. Or maybe it's to welcome him into your heart for the first time to really, really, let it be real. I wasn't a Christian once. God brought me to my knees and I became one. There just comes that day, that moment where you choose it for yourself. It's not something your parents did. It's not something your culture forced you on. It wasn't just being American. It was something you chose. I choose to become a follower of Christ. Or I choose to repent of worshiping comfort over Christ. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would like to respond either by repenting of worshiping comfort or receiving Jesus into your heart for the first time, just go ahead and look up at me right now. Amen. Amen. Come on. Come on. Amen. Why don't we pray this together? Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my brokenness and my sins. Come into my heart afresh. Fill me with your spirit. I decide to follow you because you are the amen. Amen.